All right. Well, let me start out today by giving a shout out to everybody at our East and Effingham campus and at Compassion uh, Christian out in Statesboro and at Lake Church downtown. And all of you who are joining us on the web, man, we're glad you're with us as well. Uh, this is the second week in a series of messages that you helped us plan uh, by sharing with us some of the concerns and the issues that you'd like to hear addressed from a biblical worldview. Now, last week I taught on the credibility of the Bible so that we could have a frame of reference, you know, for all the other issues that we're going to tackle in this series. And man, I hope your confidence in the Bible right now is just sky high. Next week, we're going to be talking about relational issues. Now, we have received hundreds of questions about sexual purity before marriage and after marriage, uh, God's design for marriage, who you should marry, when divorce is appropriate in the mind of God, uh, when and if remarriage is appropriate after divorce, according to the scripture, uh, what do you do if you're disappointed with your marriage and all that. Uh, This is going to be a very ambitious message next weekend, but it will be news you can use, whether you are single and wishing you were married, or married and wishing you were single, all right? (laughs) Either way, man, I'm telling you, this is going to be good for you, all right? But today's message is even more ambitious because we're going to take a look at a huge cluster of questions about the book of Revelation. Uh, We got a ton of questions about when is the world going to end? Uh, Is it going to be in our generation? How did the attacks on Israel and the persecution of Christians in Iraq fit into biblical prophecy? Uh, Cam, who do you think the Antichrist is? And is it, you know, one of the staff members at our church and, you know, stuff like that? Uh, Lots of questions about the end times. Now, obviously, uh, we can't unpack the whole book of Revelation in one message. But I think I can give you some tools that you can use to understand this amazing book that will also leave you with a great sense of hope for the future. Now, we can boil the whole message of the book of Revelation down to three statements. Number one, everybody has to pick a team. Number two, Jesus' team wins. Number three, don't be stupid. All right? That's it. That's the whole book right there. Now, I think churches tend to make two mistakes when it comes to the book of Revelation. One is to ignore it. I'm telling you, many churches act like there's only 65 books in the Bible. Uh, They don't teach Revelation at all. Uh, The other mistake about Revelation is to obsess on it. I think the reason that some churches act like there's only 65 books is because there are some people who act like there's only one, and it's Revelation, and that's all they want to talk about. Now, the Bible says that there is a blessing that comes from studying the book of Revelation, and we all want to be blessed. So open your Bible to Revelation chapter 1. It's the last book in the Bible. Go to the very end and turn left. Go one book. Hold it up if you got it. Let me see who came to Armed and Dangerous now. Y'all see I'm carrying the Magnum Bible this week. Well, in Revelation, brother, I came uh, uh, geared up, all right? Uh, Revelation chapter 1, let's dig in. Verse 1 of chapter 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, John tells us that this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, um, this book is about Jesus. It's not about the tribulation. It's not about uh, the millennium. Uh, It's not about the end of the world. This book is about Jesus. It is the primary purpose of this book is to lift up and magnify Jesus. Amen? All right, that's a weak amen, but by the time this sermon's over, it's going to be a little bit more rambunctious, all right? Verse 2 says, He made it known by sending his angel, which can also be translated messenger, to his servant John, who is the apostle John, uh, the close friend of Jesus who took care of Jesus' mom after the crucifixion. Uh, Verse 2 says, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all he saw. Now, blessed is the one who reads aloud these words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. 
Now, notice that there are three groups of people who will be blessed by the book of Revelation. Number one, the person who reads it aloud, he says, will be blessed. That means I'm going to be more blessed than you deal with it, all right? Now, this is the way it worked back in the day. You know, the letter would come to the church, and then the pastor or somebody would stand up in front of the church and read it out loud to the folks. Now, if you want to get the real spirit and the real message of the book of Revelation, I would encourage you to read it out loud in one standing. Just stand up, take one hour, sit down somewhere, read the whole book out loud. I really believe the book of Revelation is meant to be felt as much as it is studied. And reading it aloud helps you to feel the power of this book. Then it says those who hear will be blessed. And of course, those who keep, he says, those who obey what they learn in this book will be blessed because he says the time is near. And friends, that last line, the time is near, is just as true today as it was in John's day because whether you die tonight or whether you die in your sleep 50 years from now or whether the Lord Jesus appears soon and brings a climactic end to history as we know it, almost everybody who hears this message today is going to be face-to-face with the Lord Jesus in the next 60 years. Amen? You're going to be face-to-face with the Lord Jesus in the next 60 years. You are closer to seeing the Lord Jesus face-to-face right now than you have ever been in your life before. Now, friends, the Bible doesn't talk about Jesus returning. It talks about Jesus appearing. He is not an absent Lord who will return. He is a present Lord who sees it all and knows it all, who will appear one day in power. Hebrews 9, 28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And you know who that is? That's us. Amen? Now, Jesus is going to appear at the time of his Father's choosing, but the time is still near for all of us and has been since John wrote these words. Now skip down a few verses to uh, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now he's writing this on the island of Patmos where he was imprisoned by the Roman emperor Domitian because he was a Christian who would not shut up. And many of us from the church visited there just a couple years ago. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, he says. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. John is told to send this revelation to the church in seven cities in what we would call Turkey today. Verse 12 says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Oh, okay now. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining with all its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen and those that are and those that are to take place after this. Now friends, this is the outline of the book of Revelation right here. He tells John, I want you to write what you see right now. And I want you to write what's happening around you physically. 
And I want you to write about what I'm going to tell you is happening above you spiritually. And then I want you to write about what's going to happen in the future. So as you read the book of Revelation, one of the challenges is to discern what part are we reading about? Are we reading about the right now or the right here or the right there or out in the future somewhere? Uh, And because of the nature of this book, it takes a certain amount of thought to figure that out. Now look at verse 20. As for the mystery, now that's interesting. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now this verse gives us a clue to some of the challenges of understanding Revelation. John did not know immediately what he was looking at in verses 12 through 17. And so Jesus explains to him what the Lord Jesus calls a mystery. He says, you know, the seven stars represent seven angels, and that word can also be translated messengers. Many scholars think that represents the pastors of those seven churches. The seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches in those cities. Now, let's talk about this for a minute. The Bible has a number of kinds of books. There are historical narratives, like the book of Genesis, Exodus. Uh, There are law books, prophetic books, you know, where God delivers a message, like the book of Isaiah, Hosea, Joel, the major and minor prophets. There are poetry books, like the book of Psalms. There are collections of Proverbs, like the wise sayings of Solomon in the book of Proverbs. And then there's apocalyptic writing, like the book of Ezekiel, and like the book of Revelation. Revelation is an apocalyptic book, which means it is rich in imagery and symbolism. And most of that symbolism is from the Old Testament, which would be really easily understood by the readers to which John is writing this book. Friends, there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation, and there are over 500 references to Old Testament images. So if you study the book of Revelation, you're going to learn the Old Testament just trying to figure it out. Now, think about the day in which those folks were living. No magazines, no newspapers, no TV, no media, very few of what our scientists would call sensate impressions per day. You know, the kind of aha kind of experiences that that, that we would have every day, just listening to news, watching TV, whatever. So when the Holy Spirit wants to encourage these persecuted believers who literally are fleeing for their lives from the Roman Empire, the Holy Spirit chooses apocalyptic writing because when you read an apocalyptic book, especially back in the day, it creates a sense of power and excitement and surprise and, and expectation. Man, the colors and the symbols and the creatures in the book of Revelation were designed by the Holy Spirit to encourage these Christians in Turkey who were being beaten down and persecuted by the Roman Empire. Man, this book gave them hope and tough times and excitement about the future. All this symbolism in the book that confuses us really spoke to them. But man, it could trip us up sometime if we think, as Dave Algar, excuse me, Dr. Dave Algar says, photographically instead of symbolically. Because, you know, we used to think of photographically, but this book is about symbolism. And if you try to interpret symbols literally instead of figuratively, you miss the point. Let me give you an example. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the door, and anyone who enters by me, he will be saved. Now, when we read this sentence, we know that's a figurative, that's a metaphor, right? He's not really a door. What he's saying is, I'm the only way into the kingdom of God. 
Uh, I'm the only one who could die for your sins. I'm the only one who could rise from the dead. I'm the only way to salvation. He didn't have hinges. They had a door knocker on his back somewhere. And if you try to interpret that literally, you will miss the point. Now, let me talk with you about the symbolism in the book of Revelation. There are three symbolic issues that, that we're just going to have to think about. And understanding Revelation requires us to unpack the symbolism. And if you don't, you'll just miss the point. There are symbolic objects all the way through the book of Revelation. We just read a great, read a great illustration of this in verse 16. In verse 16, he says, In his hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now remember, Jesus has already interpreted what this means in verse 20. It doesn't mean that he has a sword sticking out of his face. The seven stars represent the pastors of those seven churches. Holding them in his hand refers to his power and his authority over the church. Now, if you reduce this picture to some cosmic giant holding stars in one hand and whatever in the other hand, you miss the whole point. In addition, Jesus doesn't intend for anybody to think he actually has a sword sticking out of his mouth. You know, I've seen drawings where people have tried to literally interpret that image, and they're pretty horrible, to tell you the truth. But in his day, a sword meant authority. And those people were suffering and dying under the sword and the authority of Rome. But he's writing them to say a day is coming when Jesus will appear and this world will change and his word will be the ultimate authority. So listen, when you're a persecuted church, man, that's good news. That's encouraging. But if you're some fat, lazy, lukewarm, half-hearted Christian in a comfortable country somewhere, not so much. But I'll guarantee you that the Christ followers in Iraq today who are hiding in the hills from Muslim persecution cannot wait for the authority of Jesus to appear and set things right in this world. Amen? Amen. John also uses symbolic numbers. Now, one of the challenges in apocalyptic literature is that numbers can be used literally, like seven churches, cities, or figuratively. Uh, Seven can symbolize perfection in the Bible, especially in the Jewish mentality. Uh, How many days were in the week of creation? How many days? Seven. Now, when you see the number seven in the Bible, you have to ask yourself, is this a literal number or is it a declaration of the perfect nature of something? If you read chapter four, it talks about the seven spirits of God. And most scholars believe that that represents the holy, flawless, holy spirit of God. And that number seven is not how many of them it is. It's a reference to the holiness and the distinctness of the spirit. The number 12 can symbolize God's people. Let me give you some answers. You, you, questions you answer me. How many tribes of Israel were there? How many disciples were there? How many commandments were there? That was a test. I was just going to see if y'all going to say 12 no matter what. All right. There were 10. Okay. But 12, listen, 12 is a number that's often used in reference to God's people. 12 and multiples of 12 uh, refer to the people of God in the book of Revelation. The number 1,000 can symbolize issues of infinity. Now, this number is used a lot in the Old Testament in figurative ways. For example, in Psalm 50, verse 10, when God says, Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Does that mean only 1,000 hills? Not 1,001 hills? No. It's a figurative way of saying, listen, every beast, all the cattle on every hill belongs to me. You may think it belongs to you, but the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Amen? 
Now, in Revelation chapter 8, you find this number 144,000. And there's been so much speculation on who that 144,000 is. But you know, 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. And what John is saying is, he's not saying that there are only 144,000 Jewish Christians in heaven. And you read chapter 8 and it's 12,000 exactly from each tribe. Really? I don't think that's what he's trying to say. I think what he's saying is in eternity, there will be a vast number of believers who have been through horrible things and they remain faithful. So you believers in Turkey, be encouraged, man. You are not alone. You're not the first people to suffer for God. You won't be the last people to suffer for God. And when the Lord Jesus appears, you will join a vast multitude that no man can number from every nation and tribe and people and language. And you will stand before the throne with your brothers and sisters and shout, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen? So don't get discouraged. And don't get depressed no matter what you have to go through. Because John has shown us the end And we're going to like it. Amen? We're going to like it, man. The number six can represent something that's wrong. Uh, You know, six is almost the perfect number seven, but not quite. It's not quite right. And when something is not quite right, it's wrong. Now, if six is wrong, what is 666? You know, in chapter 13, uh, the question is, is 666 a literal tattoo, a mark that's going to be tattooed on people's hand and on their head? Is it a barcode that you need to be afraid of? Is it an electronic chip that Obama's going to try and get us for Obamacare? And I mean, you know, we need to be fearing all that stuff. I mean, what, what would that even mean to people back in John's day, the people that he wrote this letter to and intended to be read out loud in their church so that they would be blessed? 2,000 years ago. Or is 66 symbolic of something that early Christ followers would have interpreted differently than us? Think for a minute about where you've heard this concept of something on your hand and something on your head. Have you ever heard that before? A mark on your hand and a mark on your head. Because I'm telling you, it's in the Old Testament everywhere. Matter of fact, you, Savannah Christians have read a passage out loud in our worship service from Deuteronomy chapter 6 every time we have a baby dedication service. We read it out loud. I can tell you all remember it. Wake up the people next to you. They're dozing. Deuteronomy 6, 6 says, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. You should repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home. Talk about them when you're on the road. Talk about them when you're going to bed. Talk about them when you're getting up. Tie them on your hands, wear them on your forehead as reminders. And you know, Orthodox Jews take that literally. They wear little scrolls of scripture on their wrist like a bracelet. And they wear little scrolls of scripture on their head like a headband. You know, like, like some of us wear a cross, you know, just to remind us of who we are no matter where we go. But the point they're trying to make is you raise your children in the Lord by thinking like a godly person and doing what a godly person does. It's not about wearing a headband or getting a mark or a tattoo on your head or or the back of your hand. Man, you let the law of the Lord affect how you think in your head and what you do with your hands. And I think what John is saying is you'll be able to tell who the followers of Jesus are by what they believe and by what they do. And you'll be able to tell who's a follower of the beast by what they believe and by what they do. And man, if you're spending hours worrying about some literal mark on your hand or on your head, I think you're missing the point. 
Man, John says three times in the book of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. Man, people are already marked as followers of Jesus or followers of the devil 2,000 years ago by the way they think and the way they act. Dude, if you are a liar or proud or judgmental or you got a selfish attitude that's hostile to God, the mark of opposition to Christ is in your head right now. Man, if you, possess, if you oppress the poor, you rip them off just so you can fill your pockets at their expense, you neglect the works of love and treat people with disdain, your hands are already marked by actions that are opposed to Christ. They are anti-Christ. You should repent while you can because there's no question what team you've chosen and it's going to lose. There are also symbolic images We've already seen this uh, image of Jesus in chapter 1. But man, there's a great example of this in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. This is just so cool. You should underline this in your Bible. John says he heard a loud voice. John, John said he saw these scrolls and there was no one to open the scroll. And he just was so disappointed he began to weep. And he heard a loud voice say, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And there he was, the Lord Jesus, man. And this is the image that C.S. Lewis uses for the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. That lion of Judah, powerful, fearless, majestic. And then John said, I looked again. And I saw there before the throne a lamb standing as if it had been slain. Which is another image of the Lord Jesus. That sacrificial lamb that takes away the sins of the world. It's beautiful and inspiring an encouraging reminder that the lamb that died for the sins of those persecuted believers who are going to read this book is also the Lion of Judah who is going to appear soon and make all things right. Now this leads us to another issue that we need to consider. In chapter 20, turn over in chapter 20, uh, John talks about the millennium. Now in chapter 20, uh, Satan will be bound And Jesus will be um, ruling and reigning on the earth with his followers for a thousand years. And that's what we call the millennium. Now, you know what the millennium is, right? The millennium is a thousand years of peace that believers like to fight about. That's what it is, right? Now, there are four ways that believers like us have historically understood the millennium in the book of Revelation. And friends, there are people who are a lot smarter than me, and I know this is going to be hard to believe, but a lot smarter than you too, who have thought differently about this for a long time. So let's approach this with some humility. Amen? A little humility goes a long way, man. The earliest view of the millennium was a pre-millennial view. Now what that means is we're living before the millennium begins. And the earliest view was the imminent appearance of Jesus. We're living before the millennium, but it ain't going to be long, folks. Many in the early church thought that Jesus would reappear during their lifetime during the same generation in which he ascended up into heaven and he would come back, uh, not come back, but he would appear and we would reign with him on the earth for a thousand years. So literally in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul has to write to people and say, quit quitting your jobs and camping out on top of the hill waiting on Jesus to come back because they were mistaken in their eschatological views. Historically, the next earliest view is what's called the amillennial view. Now, this is a Greek form. This is the alpha primitive, which means no millennium. Well, it literally means uh, no literal millennium. 
this is the idea that the millennium is a figurative reference to the church age, which is the time that we're in right now between the first and the second appearing of Jesus. Uh, those are the two earliest views, the premillennial view and the amillennial view. Then there was the postmillennial view that emerged during the Enlightenment in about the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. There was a belief that Jesus launched the millennium while he was on earth. The first thousand years after the ascension of Jesus, that was a millennium. And now he is reigning on the earth and the world is just getting better and better and better. That's what they thought in the age of reason. That theory was pretty much crushed by World War, II, World War I and mustard gas and machine guns and especially because it was followed by World War II and then Korea and then Vietnam and then genocide and international terrorism. I don't know anybody who believes this today. I don't know anybody who thinks the world is actually getting better and better and better. I think we all realize it's getting worse and worse and worse. Less than 200 years ago, the Plymouth Brethren developed a new view that was printed for the first time in the notes of the Scofield Reference Bible, and it's called the Dispensational Premillennial View. And this is the idea that there will be a rapture of the church where the people of God will be caught up. And then there will be seven years of tri tribulation. Uh, there will be two bodily resurrections, a great tribulation that culminates in a huge battle at Armageddon. And then Jesus' literal reign on earth will begin for a literal thousand years. This is the newest view. It's also the most popular view. And if you read the Left Behind novels, they were based on this, this dispensational premillennial view. Now, friends, all of these views have strengths and all of them have weaknesses if they didn't, we would not have godly people in at least three of these camps. Now, do you remember when Jesus was born and nobody saw it coming? Nobody, except the three wise men, right? Now, if the greatest Bible scholars on earth misunderstood the first appearance of Jesus at Bethlehem, don't you think we should approach the second appearing with some humility? If you do, say amen. 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 Friends, this is the only chapter in the Bible where the millennium is even mentioned. And I think it would be unwise for us to give it more attention than the Bible does. This is not a foundational doctrine. Your eternal life is not determined by whether you're a premillennialist or a dispensational premillennialist or an amillennialist. It's okay to disagree on non-essential issues, but it is a sin to divide. Amen? Say it all together, all together with me, everybody. It's okay to disagree on non-essential issues but it is a sin to divide. Personally, I think we should all embrace the pro-millennial view. I'm for it, man. Roll it out. Let's go. Let's get started, man. I mean, the truth is, Jesus told us all, you're not going to be on the planning committee. You're going to be on the welcoming committee. So let's commit ourselves to having as many Christ followers as possible welcome him when he does appear. Amen? Now, even though we may not agree on the how, Friends, there are at least three future events that we will all agree on as we prepare uh, for the revelation. Now, friends, concerning the questions about signs of the imminent appearance of Jesus uh, because of this mess in Israel and blood moons and all that kind of stuff, uh, I have a very solid answer on that, and it is, I don't know. I don't know. And if anybody tells you they do know, one thing you know for sure is they don't have the first clue what they talk about. Now, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, is this when you are going to establish the millennial reign? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Let's say it all together, big voice now. It is not for you to know 
the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But, biggest word in the Bible, say it with me, everybody. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, friends, let's do what we know Jesus said. Let's stay busy leading people to a life-changing connection with Jesus. Because whenever the end comes and however the end comes, we're going to like it. Amen? We're going to like it, man. I mean, think about what we have to look forward to as history as we know it comes to the climactic eschaton. All right, the climactic conclusion. We need to look forward to the best wedding ever. Best wedding ever. Turn with me to chapter 19, verse 6. You know, I've done a lot of weddings in my ministry. And let me tell you, weddings are about the bride. Amen? They're about the bride, man. I don't even know how the, word bride, the groom shows up. I tell the groom sometime, I said, listen, dude. All we need you to do is clean up, dress up, show up, and shut up. I mean, that's really all we need from you. Just don't complicate things, all right? And, and generally, they'll do that. And me and the groom, we'll, we'll stand in the front of the church like this. And, and everybody will be looking at us. And he's nervous. And we're kind of standing like this. And then the door will open in the back. And, and guess what everybody does? Everybody in the whole church goes, and looks back here at the bride. Because it's all about her. Well, let me tell you something. At the best wedding ever, it will not be about the bride. It will be about the groom. You know, the, the church is called the bride of Christ in the New Testament. And I know that seems a little awkward for us guys, but when you see the line of Judah, you'll get over it. Look at verse 6. Hallelujah. The only time in the New Testament this word is used is in chapter 19. Hallelujah comes from the Hebrew word. It's a plural form of the word praise him. Which, so it literally means y'all praise and Yah is from the Hebrew word Yahweh, the ever-existent one, the Lord God. So it's y'all praise the Lord. Say it with me, everybody. Y'all praise the Lord. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure. And for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Friends, the Bible begins with a divorce in the Garden of Eden, and it ends with a wedding in the eternal city. And God planned for this thing to be a big old party. This wedding's going to be big, man. There's going to be people from every nation, every tribe, every color, every tongue. No wedding crashers. There won't be anybody crashing that wedding. And you won't be there because you're deserving. You'll be there because you've been invited. You've been dressed and blessed by the Lord Jesus. Amen? Chapter 7, verse 14, it says that all the guests have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And again, this is symbolic language. You can't make a a robe white by washing it in blood. But our purity and our holiness as followers of Jesus is imputed to us, not by works that we have done. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags before the Lord. But our holiness is imputed to us because the Lord Jesus died for us on the cross The blood of Jesus is why God now looks at us as his holy and and dear children. The holiness of Jesus is what makes us pure. But notice, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The deeds of the saints. The mark on your hand. Man, those who are wearing those robes as the bride of Christ are supposed to wear those robes in public. 
Listen, man, I wear a wedding ring. This wedding ring has not been off my hand since I got married August the 20th, 1981. I wear this thing all the time. You know why? I want people to know I'm married. I want people to know I'm proud to be married to my Sarah. I'm public about where my allegiance is. My allegiance is to her and her alone. And Revelation is calling us to be the same way with our allegiance to Jesus. Man, in chapter 21, verse 8, John mentions people who will not be invited to the wedding. He talks about the sexually immoral, the idolaters, people practicing witchcraft, and murderers. But you know what he starts that list with? The cowardly. The cowardly are not invited to the wedding. Dude, he died to purchase your salvation and provide you with that robe of righteousness. Wear it. Wear it in public. Listen, man, even when we're bold, though, I'm telling you, it's still about grace. Because the passage says we were given those robes, man. Jesus paid the price that we could never pay. And at this wedding, all the glory is going to go to the groom. Because before he could plan that wedding, he had to win a war. Which means we look forward to the best judge ever. When you think about Jesus, what do you envision? What what do you think of? I think the three most popular images of Jesus are baby Jesus. Everybody loves little baby Jesus now. He's so cute. He inspires great music. We get a day off in December. You know what the best thing is about baby Jesus? He don't ask you for a thing. Right? That's why everybody loves baby Jesus. He don't ask for anything. Then there's hippie Jesus. You know who hippie Jesus <laughs> Long hair, lots of product. You know what I'm talking about. Blue eyes, even though he's Jewish, you know. He's rocking the cool robe and the sandals. You know, he's sitting on a rock with a lamb in his hands. Got the disciples in a semicircle. He's teaching them about recycling. Everybody knows about hippie Jesus, man, you know. And, and then there's suffering Jesus. Suffering Jesus. Whipped, emaciated, weak. Sweating drops of blood. But the last picture in the Bible is of warrior Jesus. Warrior Jesus. Look at chapter 19, verse 11. And then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on that was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. They follow him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. You think you can play this man? You think he's stupid? You think he works for you? He's some idiot that's going to buy your junk? He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You can't work him. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He will be the final judge of the world. He will win the final battle. Listen, Satan is the problem. He has always been the problem behind every problem, and he has got hell to pay. Friends, Jesus is pictured on a white horse. And again, everything we see here is symbolic. You know, everybody back in the day would have understood that when the great kings came back after the great victories, they rode the white horse back into the town after the battle. But here Jesus is, he's riding the white horse out to the battle because the victory has already been won. He won the victory on the cross. 
There's blood on his robe before the battle begins. You know whose blood it is? It's his blood. He won the war at Calvary. He already paid the price. Friends, all through the book of Revelation, we keep reading about this big battle, this huge battle at Armageddon. Read it. It's right here in chapter 19. Read it. There ain't no battle. Jesus shows up. He speaks one word. Bam. The battle's over. So friends, on that great day of judgment, you want to be standing behind him, not in front of him. You want to be standing with the judge of the living and the dead, not against him. Because every wicked thing, every perversion, every rebellion is going to be judged forever. Even the last enemy. And you're probably thinking, well, Cam, I thought the last enemy was, was Satan. No, no, no. He was thrown into the abyss in chapter 19, chapter 20, verse 14. Death. Death is the last enemy. And then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the great God who invited you to the best wedding ever. This is Jesus, the best judge, who will win the last battle, every battle. And together, they're going to create the best future ever. You know, life as we see it today is really confusing. And that's why we need the book of Revelation, because if we don't have Revelation, we'll become pessimillennialists. Right? Pessimillennialists. Oh, man, everything's so hard. Uh, Temptation's so fierce. It's been too long. Man, the church is just one generation away from extinction. Really? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Jesus said that he was going to build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Friend, when everything in this world is gone, his church will still be right here stronger than ever. Amen? But if we're going to handle all the evil that's happening around us, We need the book of Revelation to remind us what's happening above us. Every time I see a birth defect, every time I hear the word malignant, every time I pray for some saint who's battling dementia, I'm reminded that the curse of sin is real, but it's not forever. Jesus said in chapter 21, Behold, I am making all things new. In eternity, he will not allow one bit of his creation to remain contaminated by the enemy. Revelation closes by saying, church, a new normal is on the way. Cemeteries are not normal. Hospitals are not normal. Cancer treatments are not normal. Divorce Divorce court, leg braces, not normal. Friends, normal life is intimate fellowship with the God who created us. That's why he created this world. And that's what he wants back. And that's why he says in chapter th- verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. These former things passed away. And then what Paul said to that Roman colony in Philippi, every knee will bow. Every tongue will declare that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And his people will shout, hallelujah. Amen? Say it with me, everybody. Hallelujah. And we need to start that action right now. Dude, when you know your team's going to win, 
you go for it. Amen? You go for it, man. When you know your team has already won, it makes you bold. Man, that's why we're having Pivot next week. We're calling our guys out, and we're going to stoke that fire so that the men of our church will be bold followers of Christ, bold dads, bold husbands, bold godly men. So let's be bold. Men, women, students, let's be strong. Man, let's do stuff we've never done before. Man, as a church, let's do things people say can't be done. Let's just go for it because we know the end of the story, and we like it. Now, I know it's hard, man. I know it's hard. And we groan every day because it's hard. Listen, when I get out of bed every morning, I groan because it's hard. (laughs) But we don't gripe because we've seen the future and we like it. Amen? Father, thank you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this amazing book. Thank you for this glimpse at the end, the victorious Jesus, the overcoming Jesus, the forgiving Jesus the rescuing Jesus, the judging Jesus, the saving Jesus. We thank you for sending your son. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming for us. I pray that there will be those who will choose your team right now. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.